you very much for downloading the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Jason. Hi, Jason. Good morning, Mark. How are you this fine, fine August morning? I'm very good, thank you. Very good. How are you? You've been up to this weekend? Well, number one, I wish I had a backyard in my second floor apartment. This would be a great day for recording outside. Um, Unfortunately, that's not really a possibility. Uh, So, I am looking wistfully at the window, wishing I was outside for the next uh, 90 minutes, I guess. So I apologize in advance for that. Fortunately, your audience can't see me staring mournfully outside, so I guess that's okay. <laughs> it's not so nice here, so I've already uh, walked the dogs this morning and, uh, and had my, my share of, uh, of the outdoors. I will briefly fill you in on what I've been up to. So we are recording this on a Saturday, and I've managed to structure my day job so that I don't work on Fridays over the summer. So being in New York City, every Friday I try to do a little bit of New York City-specific tourism. And I just discovered, embarrassingly late in life, that there actually is uh, the United States National Lighthouse Museum is based in New York City. And I had no idea. So this involves taking the Staten Island Ferry from Battery Park, the lower end of Manhattan, to Staten Island. And the Lighthouse Museum is in the former U.S. Coast Guard base next to the Staten Island Ferry Terminal on the St. George side. Yeah, St. George. The neighborhood is is called St. George, which is very British, I guess, even though Staten Island is no longer under the Crown's control. So I was all ready for the occasion. I wore... You still have to wear your COVID mask inside the uh, museum because COVID is not anywhere near going away here in the States after 18 months. And I chose my Tom Baker scarf motif COVID mask that I got off Redbubble last year. So I was loaded for bear, ready for any sort of reference to the horror of Fang Rock in the museum. (laughs) You figure if anybody is talking about lighthouses, there has to be a display on famous movies or stories that took place in lighthouses. And what is more famous than horror of Fang Rock? Unfortunately, this museum uh, was programmed by folks who don't appear to have any Doctor Who knowledge whatsoever. So there was not a single reference to Fang Rock Lighthouse, the Beast of Fang Rock, the lighthouse. However, what they do have is a very impressive display of handmade models of just about every lighthouse in the United States. So as you know, the U.S. has three coastlines. It's got the Atlantic Coast the Gulf of Mexico coast on the south, and then the Pacific coast. And there are lighthouses, a chain of lighthouses along all three coasts going back, you know, literally to the 18th century. And they have beautiful displays of the lighthouses and the associated buildings and the land formations that the lighthouses are on. So it's terrific. Uh, But they also have a few models of lighthouses of antiquity, So the first thing the tour guide showed us was the Colossus of Rhodes, which is the basis for the Statue of Liberty, which I saw on the ferry coming down. And then he showed us the Pharaoh's Lighthouse. So I immediately dropped off three or four different quotes from Logopolis. It is a perfectly logical copy. And I was just waiting for him to mention the fourth doctor falling from his uh, top of the lighthouse to his death. Unfortunately, the tour guide was 
not aware of Doctor Who, and we spent a good five minutes talking about the Pharaohs Project, and just not one word of Doctor Who at all. And nobody recognized my face mask either. So the museum is great. Please patronize the museum. In fact, one of the museum's sponsors and the museum's honorary chair is a member of the royal family. And I actually got to see a letter from the personal secretary to the royal family member on Buckingham Palace letterhead, which I was not expecting to see when I woke up yesterday. So even though this is the U.S. National Lighthouse Service, there is cooperation from the Crown. So maybe when the museum is fully up and running, they're moving into a larger location. If there is cooperation from the Crown, maybe there will be a corner of the museum dedicated to Fang Rock. This is my fervent hope. So... If you see one of the princesses, please let them know. Uh, the Lighthouse Museum needs <laughs> more Tom Baker in it. Uh, yeah, so there wasn't a suggestion box or anything that you could have uh, you could have filled with uh, horror fang rock facts or anything. There was a guest book. Um, so the only thing that I could do by the end of my tour was to write the guest book entry in Fourth Doctor voice. So. <laughs> I, I, I literally – this is not even a joke. I literally wrote – there's a photo of this on my Facebook page. What a wonderful museum. So very illuminating, <laughs> which is the most Tom Bakery season 16, season 17 Tom Baker joke that ever Tom Bakered. So maybe somebody whose job it is to read the guest book will notice that and say, ah, that's what we're missing. There's a Tom yeah. Baker-shaped hole in our museum where Tom Baker should be. Definitely. Maybe you could do uh, – I think – when I was a kid, I went to the Natural History Museum in London, and I, um, I think Tom Baker does some of the voiceovers for some of the exhibits there. So, uh, you know, maybe they could uh, they could hire him to do something for the for the Lighthouse Museum as well. Or whoever <laughs> narrated the audiobook for the Fang Rock novelization, which is escaping me at the moment. But yes, that's what the museum definitely needs: Tom Baker's voice, and not just in my handwriting in the guest book. I don't think character options have done a. Um, a model of a rutan, but uh, you could sneak some of those onto the sides of the models of the lighthouses, maybe crawling up the outside of it to uh, <laughs> to uh, to recreate that scene. I will say this: there is Rhode Island is Rhode Island is a state, but it's made up of many many small islands. So Rhode Island itself, here in the states, is more of an archipelago than an actual body of land. But the, one of the parts of Rhode Island is called Rose Island, as in Rose from the Russell T. Davis era. And they actually have converted their lighthouse into an inn with three rooms. You could, you could literally stay in the lighthouse um, you know, for up to a week at a time. So my immediate thought upon learning this is I need to go to this museum and bring a like-minded friend and just spend the entire stay reenacting Fang Rock in the Rose Island Lighthouse. So I go to the webpage, and I click, you know, book a room. This, I'm not kidding, Mark, this museum is booked solid until at least January 2023. You wow. can only search by week, not by month. And I click next week 78 times, or whatever is, whatever is a year and a half worth of weeks. And by January 2023, they are still every room, all three of them, sold out every night for the next year and a half. So I'm not sure when I will get to stay in the lighthouse and do my Fang Rock thing, but 2023 is the year that I turn 50. So there's a chance that I can try and spend my 50th birthday in a lighthouse uh, pretending that I'm Reuben. I think in the UK, uh, the the lighthouse from Fugitive of the Jadoon is, is like that as well. I think 
Airbnb or something. Um, so uh, that's another one that you could do for future birthdays. Come over, stay in that one, and uh, and recreate the um, the reveal of the fugitive doctor and the TARDIS buried in the uh, in the garden. Interesting, interesting. Yes, we can all dress as the Ruth Doctor with her colorful wardrobe. Yeah, <laughs> actually, I'll, that's not actually a bad idea because if that museum, sorry, if that if that's open for staying in, uh, like an inn before the one in Rhode Island, I might just go over there and do that. It might actually be yeah. cheaper and easier to go to England to stay in a lighthouse than it is to drive up the Atlantic coast. <laughs> Rhode Island is not too far from me. <laughs> that's it. So you're probably um, probably not allowed to break the. It's the fire alarm, wasn't it? I think that. Um... That re- that released the uh, the sort of energy back into it to become the Doctor again. So it's probably big signs over the uh, over the fire alarms in that ge- in that thing. That these real fire alarms. This is not a chameleon arch. Please do not break the chameleon arch. <laughs> this is a fake. <laughs> <laughs> this is a fake. Oh, I just actually, as your longtime listeners know, I've been doing my um, classic series rewatch uh, two episodes a night. So I just got through City of Death about a week, week and a half ago. So there's a large portion of my brain that is still shouting out City of Death quotes at me uh, at very top volume. I just finished Shada last night, episodes five and six. Although, annoyingly, the latest DVD release is in movie format Mm. because the episodes are not equal length. Part one and part four are both 30 minutes long. Would not have been broadcastable in that state. So they put it in movie format without cliffhanger. So I just paused where I knew the two, four, and six cliffhangers were. So where was I going with this? Oh, yeah. So I'm finished with Shada, and I start Leisure Hive, or as we say here in the States, Leisure Hive tonight. And I'll be on Legopolis. That means in 13 days from today, which is mid to late August. So um, again, I will be very much with the Pharaoh's Project quotes again. In, in, in the next two weeks for those of you who follow me on the Twitter. Great. I will look forward to, uh, to continuing to read those. Uh, today we're going to talk about the legend uh, legends of Camelot by Jacqueline Rayner. So this is one of a pair of books that she's written um, where the, the other one being the wonderful doctor of Oz, um, which sees the 13th doctor and her friends, um, interact with the story of the Wizard of Oz. And this one, we see, as the title suggests, uh, sees the Doctor, in this case the Tenth Doctor, and Donna interacting with King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and Arthurian myth. Uh, so not the first time that Doctor Who has, has tackled this this area of mythology. See, Battlefield is, is one of my all-time favorite stories. It's... Um, it's, it's yeah, from when I was like nine years old, absolutely adored it. Um, and I was, so I was pleased and relieved when this book arrived that it does actually take account of that, that it wasn't um, it wasn't just like kind of a new take on it without acknowledging uh, what went before in Battlefield. Um, and even just reading the back of the book when it said, uh, the Doctor is investigating a strange energy in Carberry, I thought, oh, great. It's uh, they're going back to Carberry from Battlefield. So it is a kind of sequel to that one. Which is unusual, because if you look at the book, it's put out under Penguin Books, which has the Doctor Who license right now. But it's under their Puffin imprint. And at least on the Kindle version, there's a little illustration of a Puffin at the beginning of every chapter heading. But Puffin is their kids slash YA imprint. 
so this is a book that is marketed at, I guess, the tween audience, for want of a better word. But it is written by Jack Rayner, who's been involved with Doctor Who fiction since the early 1990s. So this is someone who has literally spent an entire career working in Doctor Who fiction. And the book spends an awful lot of time doing retcons, which is not what you expect would be the brief for a book marketed at 11 and 12-year-olds. I mean, it's very well-placed within the Doctor Who continuity, but I was wondering, who is this book aimed at, and how many, bearing in mind that an 11-year-old now was born 21 years after Battlefield aired, how many of them are going to be interested in the links to Carberry, and the fact that the book writes the the novel Shadows of Avalon out of the canon? Because... The Eighth Doctor book, Shadows of Avalon, written by Paul Cornell, takes place in that Arthurian universe on the other side of a dimensional rift. But now we learn that there's actually multiple, multiple planets that are influenced by the Camelot legend, and the whole story plays out everywhere. So Shadows of Avalon no longer really happens, and we'll get to it later. There's another very large revelation about the nature of Merlin, which also kind of undoes Battlefield. So a book marketed at 11 and 12-year-olds wouldn't seem to be the place to have your battlefield for arguing Doctor Who canon, but there it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I wondered about that as well. Um, but before I get into the book properly, um, what in terms of Arthurian stories and, and romances, do you have a particular favorite interpretation of it, uh, book or movie or anything like that? Arthurian mythology is, interestingly, pretty huge here in the States, even though it's not our mythology, so to speak. Although most of the U.S. began life as British colonies, um, at least most of the eastern seaboard, so I guess there is a natural affinity. So when I was when I was in the Puffin book age range, which would have been in the mid, a long time ago, <laughs> the mid 19 her there was a lot of arthurian stuff going around in ya fiction at the time so role playing games uh, very big on arthurian mythology and merlin and then when i was in 8th grade in junior high school there was a production of camelot the broadway show now i don't know how much this is taught over in england but when John F. Kennedy was president for those two and a half years, his era was called the Camelot era because reportedly Camelot was his favorite Broadway show. And after he died, uh, Jackie Kennedy, his widow, gave this very long address on television about how much he was a fan of Camelot and how much it influenced his presidency. And there's some historical debate over how true that is, but the era is called the Camelot era. So the Broadway show Camelot comes out in 1960 or so, and it was written by the same two guys who did My Fair Lady. And then, this is a bit late in the era, but the movie adaptation comes out in 1967, which is the beginning of the hippie era, Summer of Love, Haight-Ashbury, Vietnam War, the the end of Lyndon Johnson's embattled second term as president, and we're just about here at the rise of Richard Nixon. It's very strange to be doing a musical film, a three-hour-long movie with an intermission set in the JFK era, because by 1967, the culture was changing pretty radically, and I don't think school kids 
in 67 were going around singing Broadway show tunes anymore. They were singing protest songs and folk rock and, you know, what hippies would do. So the movie itself is instantly dated. But at the same time, Jack Rayner quotes from the movie pretty liberally throughout the book. So as I'm reading the book over the last week, I'm thinking a lot of Camelot. Some of the songs are in my head, the ones that I can remember. I mean, this must be a really great movie if Donna can spend the entire book pointing out what parts of the story influence what she saw in the musical. So the musical is streaming on Amazon Prime, at least here in the States. And I put it on last night. And I put it on a little bit later in the evening than I wanted to. And I didn't realize it was three hours long. So I only got to hour number one. Mark, it's awful. (laughs) Let me ask you a question. You are a Hollywood producer, right? Let's just assume for the sake of this bit that you're a Hollywood producer, right? And you have a huge budget, right? For the first 15 minutes of your movie, what are you going to do to show off your massive budget, your Hollywood-sized cast? I mean, this was filmed primarily in Burbank, so lots of green areas, wide open spaces out in Southern California. How are you going to open your film? I, you're going to show Camelot from the outside, rolling hills, the lake. And then you're going to have some action, right? You're going to have thousands yeah. of extras dressed in armor. You're going to have men on horseback. You're going to have – it's going to be like Game of Thrones, right? Just all this pageantry outdoors, right? Yeah, open like uh, like Gladiator or something, yeah. Exactly, like Gladiator. Now, the director of the movie, I think his name is Joshua Logan, um, bless him, had a different idea. He says, no, wait, you could do that. You could open <laughs> with a castle. You could open with thousands of knights charging at the camera. Lots of battles. However, I've got a better idea. Let's have the first 25 minutes of the movie take place on one small, poorly lit indoor set at night and just have (laughs) Arthur and Guinevere sing at each other. Now, Arthur on Broadway is Richard Burton. Lancelot on Broadway is Robert Goulet, for those of you who have the original cast album. They couldn't get any of them for the movie. So it's Richard Harris, the Scotsman, playing King Arthur, sometimes in a Scottish accent. And Richard Harris is known for many things, but his pleasing tenor is not one of them. So he pulls a Rex Harrison and he talks his way through half the songs, which worked for My Fair Lady, but and then they couldn't get Robert Goulet, so they have somebody called Franco Nero, who, as the name would suggest, is Italian, playing um, Lancelot, who's French and has a whole song in French, and I've never heard of Franco Nero before or since. I don't know if he had a large career. Apologies to family of Franco Nero who think he's the greatest actor ever, but the cast is primarily people that I'd never heard of, and I'm a big fan of 60s musical movies, so I know who a lot of the actors would be. So it's static, it is dull, you don't see anybody in armor until about minute 55. So I did not finish the movie last night, and I highly doubt I'm going back to watch the last two hours. And the music wasn't as good as I remembered either. So that was a major disappointment. That is disappointing. I don't think I've ever seen that or or really aware of it. I, um, when I was growing up, really liked um, T.H. White's The Once and Future um, I don't know if you've heard of that one. That is Which, what Camelot is based on, because that book comes out in 58, and the musical comes out a couple of years later. 
crediting right. crediting the once and future king as as its source material. Well, I think the adaptation that I'm familiar with, which I think I'm right in saying is based on this, is Disney's The Sword in the Stone, which uh, when I was a kid, uh, when we first got a VCR, was uh, one of the first and only videos that we had for a long time. You know, when you're a kid, you can watch things over and over and over again without ever getting sick of it. Oh, yes. The Sword in the Stone was one of the ones I watched over and over again. Um. Transformers Arrival from Cybertron, which I think was like the first few episodes just sort of stuck together to make a movie from it. Um, and Bigfoot and the Hendersons. Um, and uh, those three things, I, uh, yeah, as a kid, watched endlessly. So, yeah, I loved The Sword in the Stone. Uh, and then when I was a bit older, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, uh, obviously, is, uh, is a firm favorite as well. There there was what appears to be one oblique reference to the Monty Python movie um, in the book. Someone stares in somebody's quote-unquote general direction. But it wasn't very overt, was it? That is, um, yeah, that's very subtle if that's the... <laughs> Let's see, Sword on the Stone, the Disney version, came out in 1963. So after Camelot on Broadway and before the Camelot movie. In fact, it was the last animated Disney film before Walt Disney died, oh. or was frozen in carbonite, depending on which version of the story <laughs> you uh, you subscribe to. I'm sure there's there's enough similarities anyway that um, that it seems to be heavily based on that. Uh, the um, timing and, is certainly right. They came out within a few years of each other. Yeah, I've never read Lamort D'Arthur. Um, which, uh, I don't know, it always seems like pretty hard going. <laughs> I actually, when I was in law school, I actually bought the audio cassette version of Mort D'Arthur, narrated by Derek Jacobi. Oh, wow. This is before Derek Jacobi became the uh, uh, audio narrator in the Big Finish stable, before um, he played uh, the master and before he started doing all the BF audios. So somewhere I have a pile of cassettes of the Mort D'Arthur narrated by Derek Jacobi, but it's tough sledding, and especially if you do all your listening outside like I do when running or hiking, you can't hear every word of, uh, of the audio, and it's just we really need to sit there and concentrate to understand the, the meter, and I never was able to get through it. Yeah. There's my embarrassing revelation of the day. Never able to finish the audio version, even though it's narrated by Sir Derek Jacobi. I suppose the only other two that sort of spring to mind um, is Excalibur. Um, I guess it's from the 70s or 80s. I don't think I've seen that since I was at university, but that's um, it's got Patrick Stewart in it and um, I want to say Richard O'Brien. And if memory serves me right, I think the guy who played the lead in Excalibur was then in The Doctor's Daughter uh, 25, 30 years later. I'm drawing a blank on the guy's mm. name at the moment. Nigel Terry? That's the one. That's the yeah. one. I think you'll find no, that he was in The Doctor's Daughter as well, playing the uh, uh, the villain. So the, old, the old general guy. Yeah, that actually does look like him. Um, I say I haven't seen this for like 20 years, but yeah, Helen Mirren's in it. Um, yeah, there's a few, uh, few other recognizable faces. Gabriel Byrne as well. Helen um, Mirren Lee has Lee. a very slight Doctor Who connection. Yeah, and Clive Swift, um, obviously, who has two Doctor Who connections as uh, Mr. Copper and Mr. Joe Bell. 
Oh, that's right. Mr. Joe Bell from, uh, we've already talked about Revelation of the Daleks on a previous recording. Yeah, so he plays he plays Hector uh, in that movie as well. Um, so he's kind of notorious for his Doctor Who magazine interview, isn't he? <laughs> really, really uh, unhelpful and uh, opaque with, uh, with Benjamin Cook. Uh, Helen Mirren was romantically involved with somebody in the Doctor Who production office in the early 80s. I'll give you a hint. It was not Ian Levine. And she was actually pitched informally as the Fifth Doctor, but uh, that never became a serious. Can you imagine if Helen Mirren had played the Fifth Doctor for two or three years on TV in the eighties? That would have been amazing. It might have yeah. completely destroyed her career arc. Yeah, yeah, but possibly. In a sense, we're lucky that she didn't get it because then she had her career. But imagine if we had Helen Mirren as, as the Fifth Doctor. Yeah. If it didn't destroy a career arc, it would probably be quite tricky to get her back for Big Finish now, wouldn't it? When she's uh... <laughs> In between Fast and the Furious movies. Oh. Well, if they can get Derek Jacobi, they can get pretty much anybody, right? That's true. Yeah, and John Hurt. Yeah, that's true. Um, and then there was um, there was another movie more recently, about 10 years ago. I think it was just called King Arthur. Um, but it was it was kind of very forgettable. And then um, I just I, I thought, actually, that that was Guy Ritchie for some reason, but I think I'm conflating two stories. I think Guy Ritchie was, was planning... I remember reading this story. I don't know if this is still going to come to pass. Um, a sort of King Arthur or Arthurian cinematic universe. So um, a bit like Marvel where you would see the the different knights on their quests in different stories and then they would all come together for an Avengers-style team-up um, occasionally. So I don't know if that's still going ahead, but um, there's probably enough material there to sustain a few movies anyway. Then there's a movie out now called the green knight and i haven't i don't know if it's based on the arthurian legend of sir gawain and the green knight which we had to read in high school i don't know but the, the names are very similar yeah i um because dev patel isn't it yes yes um, dev patel really, really good reviews and i i want to see that i i kind of had the impression it was based on that um and that's one of the stories that is incorporated in legends of camelot isn't it uh, not Sir Gawain and the Green Knight per se, but there are similar stories where somebody marches into the castle with an ultimatum. Right. Oh, yes, yes, it is. It. He is playing Sir Gawain in the movie. So, yes, it is an adaptation of uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight starring Dev Patel. Oh, and Joel Edgerton, who was always in these sword and sorcery films. Yeah. So I will definitely have to go see that now. That is the latest version of the uh, King Arthur myth. And then, of course, you have so much classic literature is seated in Arthurian mythology. In fact, this is Jack Rayner's second book to have the Holy Grail in it. She had written a fourth Doctor, past Doctor adventure, which also was a crossover with the eighth Doctor. But the book is largely the Harry Sullivan story. And it takes place in England in the 1930s. But Harry Sullivan discovers the Holy Grail in the book and uses it to vanquish the bad guy. And to be honest, I did not like the book at all, which is unusual because Jack Rayner is pretty reliable. But this is her second book with the Holy Grail in it. So I guess if you're looking for Holy Grail fiction in Doctor Who, she's your writer. What was the other book called? Bane. 
it's a it's a werewolf story which takes place in the 1930s in two time zones. It's uh, Sarah and the Fourth Doctor in one time zone, and then three weeks earlier, it's Harry Sullivan and the Amnesiac Eighth Doctor, who at that point was part of the uh, Caught on Earth uh, storyline, where the Doctor spent 110 years living on Earth with amnesia. I liked it. Some of those books were very good. I remember uh, I haven't read them since they came out, but um, yeah, that that's a storyline where he didn't have the TARDIS and couldn't remember everything. And like you say, he was making his way to Father Time was uh, was a particular highlight. Oh, that was the 1980s one by Lance Park, and that was phenomenal. Mm. And then Terence Dix did a World War II espionage caper in the middle of that. I think called Endgame, which is the fourth yeah. Doctor meeting all the different World War II players. Infamous uh, Alan Turing was in that as well, wasn't he? I think was it about the Turing, Turing was in the next book called The Turing Test by Paul Leonard, which I think was the 1950s or 60s. Yeah. But that that would make sense. that was it also was in told in three time zones, and it was, it was one section narrated by Turing, one section narrated by Graham Greene, and one section narrated by Joseph Heller. And that was Turing Test. Right. So yeah, there was a pretty long arc, but. Wolfsbane is a yeah. past Doctor adventure, so it's written a few years later, and it links back to an unseen Eighth Doctor adventure during his amnesia phase in the late 1930s, right. before Turing Test would have happened, before Endgame would have happened. And I think if you're talking about the intersection of Doctor Who and Arthurian legend, the master in Frontier in Space quotes from the Tennyson poem, Galahad. He says, my strength is as the strength of ten, because my heart is pure, as one of your Earth poets said. Right. I didn't know the uh, I don't know, didn't know the origins of that one. Very good. <laughs> Anything that Roger Delgado says is instantly better. And unfortunately, he didn't yeah. survive to record the uh, poem for, uh, for audio, but mm. we, we can just imagine it in his voice. Definitely. Definitely. So, so as you say, this... Uh, this story sort of sort of rewrites the uh, the place of of Arthurian myth within Doctor Who. Uh, Battlefield sets it up in a parallel universe where uh, we've got these knights who there's a mixture of sort of sorcery and high technology, um, and uh, Merlin is a future incarnation of the Doctor, which I love that idea. Um, I, you know, we don't even ever need to see it. We just, you know, that there is a future incarnation of the Doctor who is Merlin in this other universe, or he, or he's even a parallel universe version of the Doctor. I absolutely, uh, I absolutely love that. But this um, undoes that, really, doesn't it? This story. So the idea here is that Arthur and Morgwen, who is sometimes known as Morgane and Morgan Le Fay are these two, almost like the black and white guardians, where one of them is all about order and the other one is about chaos, but it's also order here is equated with might and uh, and the chaos is with magic, uh, and they're locked in this eternal struggle between the two sort of um, belief systems. They're sort of brother and sister, aren't they? Uh, and it sort of made me think a bit of, um, of of beings like like the Black Guardian, and also like those um, those ones that we saw in Can You Hear Me in the in the most recent series of Doctor Who. That there's these sort of like kind of uh, eternal beings that, uh, that that you know got the all this stuff going on. Um, but there is also a third party in this one who is Merlin, who is this neutral figure that is just trying to stop all the destruction and all these uh, all these uh, galaxies have been destroyed by this conflict so he is uh, 
brought it down in scale to this this world where he's created this this sword and sorcery scenario of King Arthur and Camelot and the quest for the Holy Grail, and this is how the game is played out to determine who the ultimate winner is. And because Morgane, or, or the belief is that because Morgane didn't win, that she keeps resetting the game and trying different versions of it. And that's why none of the Arthurian myths uh, sort of match up with each other and the names change and there's lots of different versions of it. So the version uh, that we met in Battlefield is just one possible variant of this game. And Merlin isn't the Doctor, but the Doctor is a sort of is much like the Time Lords used the Doctor to uh, in the sort of third and fourth Doctor era to sort of carry out their bidding and, and to fix things. Merlin has been using the Doctor to fix things when they go wrong, and that's why people think that the Doctor is Merlin, and in fact he isn't. But from a larger sense, Mark, is this a story that needed to be told? In other words, was there a substantial portion of the Doctor Who fan base that needed the explanation that the Doctor is not Merlin after all, but only occasionally in telepathic contact with the extra-dimensional Merlin. Uh, so, let me just backtrack. Season 26 airs in the UK late 1989, so my PBS station didn't get the contract to air them until late 1990. I don't remember why or how, but I missed Battlefield and I missed Ghostlight when they first aired. I only saw Curse of Fenric and Survival at age 16, and I hated, hated, hated them both as I was starting to age out of my first phase of Doctor Who Phantom. So I'd never seen Battlefield or Ghostlight. I don't remember why I missed them. I don't know if I just didn't know they were going to be on or I didn't set the VCR or I didn't care. I don't know why I missed them, but I had the Ghostlight novelization, which I loved. Um, I never saw the Battlefield novelization in, in, in the stores. So my freshman year of college, this was the same weekend that Highlander 2 came out. So we had <laughs> just seen the disaster that is Highlander 2. And we went off campus to this now defunct science fiction bookstore in Baltimore City called uh, Tales from the White Heart. Um, which is a famous sci-fi name in and of itself. And we spent the entire walk to the store just going, they're aliens from the planet Zeist, which is the big revelation of Highlander <laughs> yeah. 2. So all my friends are wandering around this bookstore buying you know, old 1930s pulp or great classic science fiction novels. I bought the novelization of The Time Meddler. I bought the novelization of Battlefield, which I'd never seen up to that point and a couple of back issues of DWM. And the owner of the store, older lady, gave me this funny looks. <laughs> you're in this store? That's what you're buying? The time meddler? Really? So <laughs> I read Battlefield. The Battlefield novelization by Mark Platt is incredible. It's probably one of the best written novelizations ever. It's really long, and it goes heavily into the technology of uh, the, the parallel dimension where the Arthurian stuff comes from. And it's almost a cold splash of ice water in the face to watch Battlefield, which I finally caught a few years later when it came around Maryland Public Television in 94. So there's a three-year gap between reading the novelization and seeing the episodes, and the episodes are so poorly directed and so 
cut down with so many deleted scenes that you wouldn't get until you know the DVD came out years later. So it was a disappointment watching Battlefield on TV after having read the book first because the book is so lush and so epic and there's literary references in there and everything. And the Battlefield book you could fall in love with. So I was – again, you can't blame Jack Rayner for my expectations. I was expecting a book that was going to be like the Battlefield novelization and do the same with technology. Instead – and I do give her credit for this. It's a very – Tenth Doctor era book. Her voice for the Tenth Doctor, perfect. Her voice for Donna is perfect. The witty banter between the two, the prickliness between the two is is amazing. And it's also appropriate for the era. It's a very timey-wimey plot. So it isn't, you know, the Tenth Doctor lands in Camelot and goes, hello, Arthur. Uh, Merlin, it is you. There's none of that. So there's a distress signal and they land in Carberry, which is where Battlefield took place, and there's a reference to Vortigern's Lake. But they don't stop off. They don't go to the Wilkinson's Inn. I've forgotten the actress's name, but she was also in Earthshock, the lady who's blind and uh, Morgane restores her sight. We don't get a scene with her. We're only yeah. in Carberry for about three paragraphs, and then the TARDIS is drawn into Vortigern's Lake, through an extra-dimensional void, and then it lands on a planet in another parallel timeline, and the TARDIS is completely drained of energy and can't go anywhere, which is good for the Tenth Doctor because that was how the um, the rise of the Cybermen took place. It's the, it's the same basic mm-hmm. setup. So they land in this strange planet in another universe, and they believe they're going to be stranded there for the rest of eternity. Spoiler alert, they're not. Um <laughs> And they see an old man and a young man riding a donkey approaching them from a distance. And then we learn that Arthur and Morgwen and Merlin have been locked in this separate dimension, kind of like the Phantom Zone from the Superman movies. And they're by the mere fact of traveling through the void, the TARDIS has inadvertently smashed open this dimension and the dreams that Merlin has given to Morgwen and Arthur are leaking out, and they influence this world. So this anonymous old man and young man and donkey become uh, Sir Ector and a mighty steed in armor, and young Arthur, who's a squire to Sir Kay. That story is told but not seen in uh, Camelot the Musical during the interminable first 25 minutes where two characters are standing in a dimly lit set telling stories. Oh, where was I? Oh, yes. So it's not the actual Arthur and the actual Hector and the actual Kay and the actual Gawain and the actual Galahad. These are natives to this nameless planet in another dimension who are influenced by the bits of dreams coming out. And this ties into the cover of the book, which is the 10th Doctor on horseback wearing... 3D glasses, you know, the paper glasses with the one red and the one blue frame. He realizes that by wearing these 3D glasses, he's actually able to see the extra-dimensional energy seeping out from Merlin's pocket universe. And that's how he's able to track what's going on. But the timeline is sped up, and these stories are being told on fast-forward. So they'll do a scene where Arthur is a boy pulling the sword out of the stone – And then Donna blinks, and there is a time jump, and then all of a sudden they're five years later, and Arthur is about to marry Guinevere. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's ten years later, and somebody's off on a quest. Boom, six months later, somebody's off on another quest. 
So Arthur lives his entire life over the course of this 24-chapter book, and the Doctor and Donna, for them, it's only a matter of days or hours. But for Arthur and his crew, it's a whole lifetime. And at the end of the book, spoiler alert, there's a huge reset button as the Doctor is able to finally restore and seal up the dimensional universe where Merlin and Morgan and Arthur are. So all the characters restore back to where they were at the second that the TARDIS landed in the first place. This is good in one sense because it is very appropriate to the Tenth Doctor, the early timey-wimey era. This is exactly the kind of story you would have seen on television in the Donna season, which I guess was, was 2008. Um, on the other side, it's a negative because that means there's no proper guest characters in the book. You're only ever aware that you're seeing anonymous people who are being influenced by these dreams. So Arthur is not really a proper character in the book. Guinevere is there, not really a proper character. The knights will dip in and out for a few chapters at a time. But there's really no proper guest character. It's the Tenth Doctor and Donna interacting with these phantoms who speak in stilted speech. Although you pointed this out earlier during the pre-recording, so I'll give you the honor of discussing it. <clears throat> who plays Lancelot in this book? Spoiler <laughs> alert, not Robert Goulet. <laughs> yeah, there's, um, there's a very nice kind of meta joke here. When Lancelot arrives at the court of Camelot, and Donna's swooning quite a bit, it's fair to say, about how handsome he is. <laughs> yes. And the doctor says, you know, it's funny, he reminds me of a science teacher that I used to travel with. Uh, so, yeah, this is this is uh, obviously a reference to William Russell playing Lancelot in uh, an old TV series before Doctor Who, I think, wasn't it? Before he was uh, Ian Chesterton, he played, it was a series called The Adventures of Lancelot. Uh, or the, again, you know, I didn't grow up in the UK. Um, was that an ITV series or was that a BBC series? Um, I don't know. It's, 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 it's quite, quite well before my time. Um, I'm not sure what channel it was on. I don't think ITV was around before. Yeah. That, ITV wouldn't have been around. So it must've been BBC. Um, I would imagine I could, I could be wrong about that. I think they've been repeated recently. We've got a channel here called Talking Pictures, and they show really old movies and TV shows. Um, and I caught a bit of one of the uh, one of these Lancelot TV shows. Um, and it held up pretty well, and it was good to see William Russell in a different role. They show – I watched uh, I watched one a while ago as well. It was a movie with um, William Hartling called Jackpot, where he played a detective, uh, and he was very good. He was very good in it. So, yeah, it's good, good to sort of catching uh, all things like that. What surprised me – I mean, I, I caught the reference to William Russell. That was terrific. That was very clever, and I liked that. There is an awful lot of references to the classic series in this book, which, again, if it's being aimed at 11- and 12-year-olds, that's all going to sail over their heads. So this book is being aimed at us, fans in their mm. early – or in my case, middle, or as my kids say, <laughs> very, very late middle 40s, is written for us, but published in a book line that is not our sphere of influence. So let's just take a quick walking tour of Legends of Camelot. When the TARDIS crash lands and is drained of energy, they can only get out by turning a hand crank to open the door, which is death, death to the balance. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm just going through my Kindle where I have all the uh, notes laid out. I put a highlight for every one of these classic series references. 
There's a reference to the Doctor being the president of Gallifrey, which is the invasion of time, isn't it? And there is a deliriously funny paragraph where the Doctor describes the key to time. So, so basically, the extra-dimensional universe where Merlin keeps these two prisoner shatters, and there are these shards of glass that go flying onto the planet where the Doctor lands. And he has to go around collecting the shards so he can seal up the void. And he likens it to the quest of the key to time. And there's a funny paragraph where he's describing to Donna all the adventures of the key to time season in one paragraph and making it sound as wacky as possible so that she wouldn't believe him. But it's all it's all true. Yes, the key to time was disguised as a statue, a planet, and another person. <laughs> so there's also a reference to Time Toss, which is Shada, which I just finished watching. Um, there are several others. Oh, another note that I made for myself is the extra-dimensional business is a really long way of getting into the story. The book is about a quarter of the way done before the Arthurian stuff actually happens. There's, there's a bit of exposition in the TARDIS to begin with, isn't it? Because there's, um, there's a book which is for Time Tots, which is where the Doctor uh, learns about this this battle between Arthur and Morgwen uh, with Merlin, which he says he doesn't remember reading when he was a Time Tot, but he sort of had a, a bit of a knowledge of it, which is interesting because I think Camelot and the Wizard of Oz book, they play on this, uh, on the idea that people have got a vague idea about these stories, but they don't know them in detail. So in the Wizard of Oz, the Doctor and her friends um, have like vaguely know the story, like they've maybe seen the movie when they were kids, they've never read the book. Um, and this is, yeah, because it's... Um, a mishmash of different Arthurian legends, which is is you know what we've got anyway, because we've got various books and interpretations of it. Um, that that that's why that's why there are different versions because it's it's this game that is constantly replayed. Um, so yeah, what what ma- what it made me wonder is, uh, you know, presumably Jacqueline Rayner didn't say I want to write a book about uh, uh, King Arthur with Doctor Who. It's, it's a brief she's been given, so. In terms of already being done script-wise very well in Battlefield, although as you say, not not so much in the execution. There's quite a funny bit in um, the uh, in Andrew Cartmel's book Script Doctor um, because I don't know Benaronovich is I just can't watch it because he's so sort of disappointed with it. But the uh, he described the knight's armor as being this sort of like high tech, um, you know, almost like a flight suit or something like that. And what we get is the traditional knight in in armor um which the thing that ben aronovich said at the time was it was specially made for the story so it wasn't even like they tried to save some money by getting some some armor out of stock that they already had they they built it specially and built it wrong um not to the specification which is which is very frustrating and the whole idea that when they get into the spaceship under the lake and I think Ace says, "Ooh, it's like a, it's like being inside a living being," and they're on a sort of wrought iron, wrought iron <laughs> staircase with, with Christmas tree lights, Christmas wrapped lights wrapped around the the, the, the railing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, it's so organic. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I think you know, in terms of the brief that she had, um, you know, one way of of doing this is is to expand that and say, well, that was one iteration of this wider story and this wider battle that um, that, that keeps going so it doesn't it doesn't completely invalidate battlefield but 
the thing that it rewrites is that the Doctor isn't a future incarnation, which is the thing that I didn't quite like about the book, just because I'm in love with that idea so much right. that a future incarnation of the Doctor is Merlin. And especially now, we've learned that the Doctor is not limited to 13 incarnations. They are, in fact, immortal, and there is an mm-hmm. infinite number of past and an infinite number of future incarnations yet to come. There is still a lane for the Doctor to be this red-headed magician like he is in the prologue to the Battlefield novelization where Merlin as the Doctor actually appears. But now, no, it's the Doctor has a telepathic link to Merlin who uses him and is never actually going to be Merlin who's an extra-dimensional wizard. Again, that wasn't a story that needed to be told. But yeah, I've also found classic series references to draconian wedding ceremonies as frontier in space. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of the book, when Arthur and Morgwen t- try to hijack the TARDIS, they are repelled by the hostile action displacement system, the HADS, which was only seen once in the Crotons, but has had a very long afterlife in the books. It is also in um, Cold War. Oh, uh, which I've only seen that episode once. That was the one on the nuclear submarine with the the Ice Warriors. Yeah, it's the it's a sort of series seven A sort of pattern where each story sort of reflects an era of a different Doctor because it's it's going into the fiftieth. So Rings of Akatan was was a bit first Doctor and it had some references to the Doctor and the Granddaughter, and then the second one it's kind of based under siege, Ice Warrior, the Hads, uh, and then then you've got Hyde, which is the uh, Metabolis Crystal, and or, uh, or as Matt Smith says, Metabolis. Metabolis. Really? Nobody, yeah. caught, nobody caught that. Nobody caught him mispronouncing the word. Nobody said, oh, by the way, Lo, come here. It's Metabolis. Apparently they did, and they they did eat ADR, but it somehow didn't get applied to the episode. Um, so it, it was picked up, and then, yeah, it, it got it got fluffed somewhere. Did they at least um, fix it for the DVD release? They could have done that. <laughs> they should have done, yeah. The um, But maybe the, the, the deepest cut of all is to the Ice Ray Lollies advert when um, the at the end, Donna's talking about all the sweets that she misses, or candies, I guess you would say, from the 70s that she misses that she that you can't get in uh, in 2008 in the UK. So she wants to travel back in time and get them. And she mentions Ice Ray Lollies, which is an advert that had um, a second doctor and a TARDIS. It's um, it's one that you see on on these sort of documentaries, like th- you know, thirty years in the TARDIS or more than thirty years in the TARDIS, I think. Um, but you don't see the second Doctor's face because obviously he couldn't get Patrick Troughton. So you see a figure in black with a stovepipe hat who is throwing <laughs> his arm over his face as the uh, you know the Daleks attack the TARDIS or something like that. So that's uh, that that's a really deep cut in that one. But in terms of what you're saying about you kind of who is it for and who is it aimed at. I'd like to think that, you know, the 11 and 12-year-olds would read this and then that would make them seek out Battlefield and the key to time and uh, and, and the other stories that they would realize what a, what a rich history there is there for them to explore on the back of this. One would hope that they would do that. So I'll say that I do not know the Ice Ray Lollies advert. I am not familiar with that. <laughs> I saw the reference in the book, but it completely went over my head and I completely missed it and let's see I think it was Mark Gatiss who wrote Cold War so he's exactly the guy that you would expect to do a continuity reference and one more thing also just going through my notes there's also a reference to Mask of Mandragora the doctor says that he learned his swordsmanship from a captain and Queen Cleopatra's bodyguard which is a 
direct quote from Mask of Mandragora. Yes. So there's a lot of that going around. Yeah. <laughs> the the other thing that um, you mentioned earlier as well about how well it fits into the Tenth Doctor era and in particular as well Series Four is the way that you mentioned that you know when when Donna blinks and it and it skips forward as a time jump to another significant event. That's like her experiences inside the computer in the library, isn't it? When she's living her life and she's living it as we view it on, 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 as we were watching a TV scene where it would just cut from scene to scene to scene. But she's actually experiencing it like that. And she's like, oh, hang on a minute ago, I was in the park and now I'm putting my kids to bed and, and, and that type of thing. So it, it's another experience for Donna like that where the the boring bits are being skipped or the, the bits where nothing much happens are, are being skipped for. Right. Right. And there's also a pretty big reference to fires of Pompeii, where she talks about the time she made the doctor save somebody from this great historical tragedy. Mm. So that, that works as well. So I guess there's references to the new series as well as to the classic series as you, as you would expect. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I give her credit. The 10th doctor sounds just like David Tennant and the things he would have said on screen 13 years ago. Uh, Donna, I haven't seen a Donna episode in the longest time, but her vocal patterns came right back into my head because they're captured very well in the book. Uh, so you got a book with 24 short chapters. Each chapter is only seven or eight minutes to read, according to the Kindle. And uh, it, it moves. I mean, you know, it, it's an entire life compressed into a, you know, small 200 page novella so there's never time to get bored and there's always mm. something funny going on there's a lot of comedy business like uh, they land on a day where merlin has gifted this wondrous thing to arthur and they're trying to figure out what the gift is because it's covered in a tarpaulin but it's very round and it's very table shaped and the doctor and donna <laughs> kind of fall over each other laughing um as they realize, oh, this round tabley thing under the tarpaulin must be the round table. <laughs> yeah, I I really like their interplay, and Donna just just questioning everything that that you wouldn't question if you were watching an, a King Arthur movie or reading a book about the way they're so bound by honor and and pledges and and that type of thing, and um, and having to go on these stupid quests, and <laughs> she just. Why would you do that? Why, why are you doing this? You know, you are, you are kind of wealthy knights. You could just go out and help people. You're spending all your time doing these these crazy quests and, and killing each other and risking life and limb. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it's a very clever way of getting as the whole uh, kind of Arthurian canon into one story um, without it being an incredibly long time for the Doctor and Donna as well. And that's um, Donna as the voice of reason, which is the same role that she played on TV that one season. She was the doctor's conscience, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think, and it's, uh, I suppose it's something that people talk about, isn't it? With the, um, although this isn't a celebrity historical because it's not an actual figure. Um, the, the sort of the theme park historical idea, isn't it? So you, uh, you want to see the big names and the big events that, that sort of shape their, shape their lives. So we see everything from, like you say, from the, the sword in the stone, which I'd never thought about it, but it points out in here that the sword in the stone isn't Excalibur. Um, and I think probably because Donna thinks this as well, and it's that idea that people have only, you know, most people have only got sort of a vague idea about these things, that I'd always assumed that it was. But then obviously the, the, the story is about the lady in the lake. 
um, producing the sword and, and, and giving it to King Arthur as well. You know, you're right. It's almost as if the book is a meta exploration to explain why Arthurian mythology is so inconsistent because there are so many versions of the story depending on who's doing the telling. So the book serves as a way to explain why that is, which, which again is not, I think, a story that needed to be told. But why are the versions of the story different when they're written 500 years apart? I mean, it's clever, <laughs> but I don't think it was absolutely necessary. All right, so Mark, uh, another point that I had from the book is that there are, I think I counted three different references to the Wizard of Oz inside Legends of Camelot. Now, this book is part of a matched set. Jack Rayner also writes the Wizard of Oz book at the same time. And you've read that, and you've already done mm -hmm. a recording on it, which will be releasing shortly, I hope, because I want to hear that. But I have not read the Oz book yet. I'm curious to know if Jack puts a few references to Arthur and Camelot inside the Wizard of Oz book, the same way that she has two or three references to the Wizard of Oz inside the Camelot book. I can't remember any. No, as far as I can remember, there there aren't. But I don't I don't remember picking up on the the Oz ones in this either. Um, to be honest, they've they passed me by. I think I'll go back into my kindle notes and see if i can find them as we're talking about other things but it's it's definitely there oh a few other references there's a there's a sir andred in king arthur's court which i am almost certain has to be a reference to the invasion of time i don't remember a historical sir andred from any of the various versions of the round table story that i've seen <laughs> Yeah, that, that seems a bit much of a coincidence. So inside chapter six, above the center of the lake, a cyclone of dream wisps was revealed. It reminded Donna of the beginning of The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy's house is carried away by a tornado. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember that now that you mentioned it. They could well be in The Wizard of Oz, and, and I just haven't, uh, they haven't really registered with me then. Uh, three pages after that is another great, so, like I said, there's a lot of references to the classic series. Here's the doctor. The uncle of a friend of mine once said, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> so that's uh, obviously Uncle Ben, and that's uh, Spider-Man. So the doctor is friends with Peter Parker, thanks to this book. Yeah. <laughs> but that's another sort of tenth doctor trope, isn't it? Because he also pretends, or doesn't pretend, he claims to be friends with Arthur Dent, doesn't he? And the Christmas Invasion as well. So uh, that would mean that uh, Doctor Who, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and the Marvel <laughs> Universe uh, were all in one, uh, <laughs> in one universe. Well, Doctor Who is a Marvel superhero because of DWM, and the short-lived 1980s US uh, Doctor Who comic was under the Marvel banner and actually has Spider-Man visible in a couple of panels in some of the later stories. Oh, really? I don't think I knew so that. Wow. Marvel Comics did this 22 or 23 issue run of a Doctor Who title in the mid-80s. And it was taking the DWM comics, because I believe Marvel owned DWM at the time. I don't know if that's still the case. So they released a 23 issue, almost two years. And they started with, um, is it the Iron Legion? Well, whatever, whatever it is, it's... Um, they, yeah, they, the Iron Legion. They right. take the DWM comics and release them in Marvel Comics form. So, like issue eighteen or nineteen is Tides of Time, 
I first got into it issue 20, which is the Stockbridge Horror, and I collected, I think, three issues, and then the line ended due to poor sales. And when I was at the last New York Comic Con before the pandemic, I was able to get the final issue of the DWM, sorry, the Marvel Doctor Who comic. So in one of those last issues, I think it's somewhere at the end of the Stockbridge Horror Saga, Spider-Man is visible on the TARDIS console uh, on a monitor. (laughs) So yes, there already is a Doctor Who Spidey connection, and this book just makes it even more canonical. That's great. I haven't read those for a while. I've got some of the graphic novels of the uh, the Iron Legion, the Tides of Time, uh, and bits of pieces like that. So yeah, I uh, I wonder if the if they kept if they kept that in because they're all reprinted by Panini now, who uh, who own the Doctor Who magazine. So I wonder if uh, I wonder if they were excised or not. So I'll uh, I will check that out. I have them in the other room. I should have thought about that and looked it up before I started the recording, but I'd forgotten we were going to be talking about Spider Man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's um that's yeah if it's a reference to that comic that's uh that's another very deep cut that's um that's almost uh, uh on a par with the the ice ice ray lollies uh, <laughs> advert from the 1960s and there's a lot of deep cuts in this book so i've been a little <laughs> bit critical of the book and i've been a little curious as to the style of storytelling and why there's so much of this extra-dimensional, timey-wimey stuff before they get to the Arthur story. Putting aside my fanny complaints, it's fun to read, goes by quickly. The Tenth Doctor and Donna sound great. There's plenty of classic series references for those of us older fans who live for that kind of thing. I would rather see a reference to Mask of Mandraga than watch a lot of new series stories, so... Um, The book definitely pushes all my fan buttons in the right way. Uh, This is a better use of the Holy Grail than we got in Wolfsbane. Um, Again, I could do with a little less Christianity in my Doctor Who. And this book does have a version of the Spear of Destiny, which evidently is some part of Christian mythology that I wasn't aware of before today. Um, I could use less of that, but because the Arthurian knights would have been very, very Christian, I guess it makes sense. They would have been influenced by this sort of thing a lot more than I am here in 21st century New York. Yeah, I, I same. I absolutely enjoyed it. I've read most of it just over two days, so I've read it pretty quickly. Like you say, it gallops along. Oh, um, God, did you say gallops? Mark, Mark, You're going to lose your <laughs> podcaster license with another bad joke like that. That was a that was an accidental one, I've got to say. Um, and I was even looking at the cover with um, with the tenth doctor sat on a horse when I said it, and I didn't I didn't realize. Maybe I was subconsciously being uh, influenced by uh, by hypnotizing me with his three uh, D specs. Uh. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's funny. Um, it's 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 fast paced, and uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed. Probably of the two, I slightly had more fun with this one than the Wizard of Oz one. Now. Jack Rayner spends a lot of time talking about the Learner and Lo Camelot. In the Oz book, does she spend a lot of time talking about Wicked, the Broadway musical? No, which surprised me because the cover does seem to be a riff on the poster for um, for Wicked because uh, it's uh, it's got the well Missy in this case, which is a massive spoiler for the book, <laughs> like. Um, it's it's surprising when you read it that that she is on the cover. Um, I don't know why I didn't just put the Thirteenth Doctor on the cover, 
which would have made more sense. But yeah, it's um, there's there's no references to Wicked in there. It is all about the book uh, and to a lesser extent the movie. Interesting. So there's no reference to Adina Menzel playing uh, uh, the Wicked Witch of the West in the Broadway musical. No, no reference to uh, Joel Gray being the original Wizard of Oz. I don't think so. No. A chapter called I, Defying Gravity. No reference at all. <laughs> kind of considering how much Camelot is in the Camelot book, I would have expected some Wicked in the uh, Wizard of Oz book. Yeah, I, I think you no. Know, it, it starts and ends with the uh, with the cover, unfortunately. But um, uh, well, I don't want to spoil it too much. But it's uh, more. I would say it would, uh, it would predate Wicked and, and most of the other uh, Wizard of Oz stuff. So I do like the yeah. idea that we are still getting. I mean, they're not doing the new series Adventures anymore. We're not getting these three books every six months telling stories with the current TARDIS crew. But the fact that you can do a matched pair of books by the same author, both taking place deep inside mythology, these are good books to have if that's all we're getting. Definitely, definitely. And they are, they're really um, – I don't know. You've got the Kindle version there, but they are very – Nice looking books as well. That is beautiful. That's a much more beautiful cover than we ordinarily get. That's definitely the penguin format. That's what penguin books look like. Yeah, um, I, I think they're both yeah really uh, really really handsome pair of books. And um, I should mention as well that you can uh, make them even nicer by ordering these book plates and bookmark from Jacqueline Rayner. Um, tragically, her mum died during the writing of these two books. Oh, no. To uh, so to raise money for the hospice that helped her, um, Paul Mars has done these uh, the artwork for these, um, which uh, obviously the listeners can't see, but uh, but Jason can. So the the one for Camelot has got uh, the tenth Doctor and Donna, um, and Jack Romain has signed that one, and the one for the uh, wonderful Doctor of Oz has the thirteenth Doctor and Missy, and the. Bookmark has got sort of uh, just smaller versions of, of both of those images as well, um, and is, is signed on the back. So all of them goes to charity, and uh, it's, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to where you can order from them because it's uh, it's a fantastic cause, and uh, yeah, it's it's lovely to have those in the inside cover of the book as well. Those are beautiful. Um, yeah, I do not have those. Obviously, you can't put a book plate on your uh, on your uh, Kindle. <laughs> you won't be able to see the writing afterwards. Uh, yeah. uh, you, you, you get a small black and white reproduction of the Paul Mars art. Wouldn't yeah. quite have the same impact, <laughs> I guess. No, that's it. Um, so yeah, just uh, just just a really lovely thing to uh, to uh, to include in those there. So Mark, just to uh, bring us back to the current events portion of the broadcast, you, we've mentioned the Thirteenth Doctor a few times. We have not talked about the elephant in the room which is that as of about a week before you and I recorded this, and a few days after the San Diego Comic-Con presentation, where they introduced uh, the upcoming specs for Series 13, uh, we've had a loss in the family with Jodie Whittaker and Chris Chibnall both announcing that they are stepping down. Now, you and I have a lot of Twitter followers and Twitter streams in common we would probably get a, the same twitter feed day to day i've seen on my end a lot of speculation about what's coming next who is going to be the next doctor and more importantly who is going to be the next showrunner i was kind of hoping that we could get to see jody whittaker under a different showrunner who perhaps you know knew how to write for her uh so we have chris chibnall who just doesn't 
do very much with the Jodie Whittaker doctor and surrounds her with more and more companions. I would have liked to see what she could have done, and I guess we'll find out whenever she signs her inevitable big finish contract. But I am curious as to what's coming next. Are we going to get another 60-year-old white guy showrunner who is devoted to telling these stories to explain a 45-second clip from 1976, which is what The Timeless Children was? Or are we going to get a younger and more contemporary showrunner who is not a child of the 1970s, who is not still telling these 1970s Doctor Who stories for a younger and younger audience that has no idea what's being referred to? Are we going to get the first 21st century or the first millennial showrunner? Are we going to get a new version of Doctor Who that pays attention to what Marvel is doing and what Disney is doing with the Star Wars series and the MCU TV series like Wanda and the Vision or Loki or The Mandalorian? Are we going to get 21st century Doctor Who with a younger showrunner, um, which I think is what the show kind of needs to thrive at this point. I've just seen so much criticism unfounded of Jodie Whittaker from the angry right-wing, not-my-doctor crowd, and I've seen much more measured and intelligent criticism of Chibnall as a storyteller. Now, I can't answer this question because I don't know much about British television or actors. I didn't know who Jodie Whittaker was until the day she was cast. Didn't know who Matt Smith was or David Tennant was until the day they were cast. There's a good chance that whoever the next Doctor is, unless it's Helen Mirren, I will never have heard of them. And um, I don't know the names of all the TV showrunners because I'm just so far behind on my... Spending 45 minutes a day watching the Tom Baker era means I don't have a lot of time for contemporary TV, so I haven't even seen some of these, these series yet. But do you have an intelligent guess as to what's coming next? I would say, as far as I know, most British TV shows don't have showrunners in the way that I think Doctor Who basically sort of pioneered that over here. Um, and I know some shows have followed suit, um, you know, to, to some extent. I I don't know. I, I feel like Pete McTeague is the heir apparent. Um, he is, uh, he's run other shows, hasn't he? He did Wentworth in Australia. Um, I don't know about his age. Um, I don't know what kind of, uh, you know, how his age compares to Russell T. Davis, Stephen Moffat, Chris Chibnall. But, I mean, coming from another country will give him a, a different perspective. He's, I know he's heavily involved in the, the Blu-ray collections. He, uh, he sort of writes uh, the, uh, those wonderful trailers uh, that we get, like the one where Mel is uh, head of this sort of uh, intergalactic dragon's den and, and, and introduced the idea of Ace or, or expanded on the idea of Ace being the head of a charity, which I think Russell T. Russell T. Davis did in the Sarah Jane Adventures. Uh, and he, he produces, I think, uh, behind the sofa features and things for the Blu-ray collection. So uh, he, he's heavily involved, um, I think, in Doctor Who already. He's written two, obviously, two episodes from the last two series. Maybe the smart money would be on him, but uh, beyond that, I don't know. And he also appeared in the behind the sofa for season ten. I think it was him. And then it was Joy Wilkinson, who's also written for the new series. And then I believe Phil Collinson, who was the original producer of the revived series in 2005. Yeah. They were a terrific trio, by the way. But yeah, Pete McTeague, I believe, um, 
just based on the way he looked and dressed in the behind the sofa. I would guess he was from the '80s, so he's probably a millennial. So he'd be mm. the right he'd be the right age group for a younger showrunner. But he's also a big fan of the classic series, obviously. So just as long as he doesn't give us another timeless children's story arc that is rooted heavily uh, in, in some 20 second clip from uh, 1976, <laughs> just tell good stories. Well, so very quickly before we go, if uh, you any any picks for the Doctor, any sort of dream casting? Again, I'm so behind on current television, and I don't know most British actors, so I wouldn't be able to guess anybody who is likely to be on the inside track. I know the current season of Loki in Marvel has been described as American Doctor Who. It's very reportedly very Doctor Who whimsy. So Tom Tom Hiddleston would be the obvious choice, although he's probably yeah. a little busy with the MCU contract. Um, yeah, I, I imagine he's quite tied up. But in in that series, you got you got the female Loki as well, right? Um, Sophie Sophia Della, oh, I've forgotten her name. Um, but yeah, it struck me watching it that she'd be very good. Um, but I also think Kush Jumbo who. Um, I probably watched her on at least three series of The Good Fight before I realized she was British. <laughs> um, I don't think it was until she popped up on David Tennant's podcast that I actually realized she was British. And she's back in the UK now. She's moved back over from the US. She's done a show that is only on BritBox, I think. Um, so, yeah, maybe, maybe she'd be in a good position. But I also like Jamila Jamil from The Good Place. So basically, basically actors who've been in shows with good in the title, The Good Fight and The Good Place. <laughs> And then, of course, the good doctor here in the States is Freddie Highmore, whose father was in State of Decay. So he would be a good choice, too. Freddie Highmore, I, know he's, uh, I know the name. I can't quite picture him. Um, one of the, I think, Tarak in State of Decay. So one of the secondary characters was the father of uh, Freddie Highmore. Right. I'm going to do a quick fact check on that on Wikipedia because I haven't seen the episode in a couple of years. But my recollection is that was uh, the father of the guy from the American version of The Good Doctor. The uh, original Good Doctor was a K-drama, but you're not getting a South Korean actor to play the Doctor. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, that's why I know the name. Oh, yes, the uh, Tim Burton version 15 years ago. Tim Burton that's right. I, knew, I yeah, couldn't place the name. Uh, I don't know. I, don't, I can't see them going back to a male Doctor, but... Uh, okay, well, I was, it's not State of Decay. That was Paul Bettany's father in State of Decay. Um, Freddie Highmore's father played Malcon in Planet of Fire. Right. That oh, was, all right. I, I, have, I have my father of famous British actors living in America <laughs> wrong. It was the father of Malcon, not, the, not, not, not Tarak. Oh, there we go. I apologize <laughs> to your listeners. <laughs> That's a good fact, though. That's a good fact. So he plays he plays the good doctor on the American version of the K drama, the good doctor. So if you're talking about actors with the TV series with the word good in the title, he's another choice. I feel like they're going to go back to a male doctor just to shut up the not my doctor, angry Twitter hating crowd. But I'd rather see a second female doctor with better writing who leans into the doctor being a female and tells more interesting stories. I tell you, yeah, I mean, you'd like to think that they wouldn't listen to like that minority on Twitter, but 
I don't know. I mean, it's not just Jodie Whittaker. For me, I've I've wanted to see a Doctor um, crossover into a new showrunner since David Tennant. You know, I'd love to have, for him to have done a series with Stephen Moffat. I'd have loved Peter Capaldi to stay on. Um, you know, and, and see uh, see something. It's just um, I think it's just fascinating to see that change. I, I'd just be really really interested in it. You know, when you think about the changes throughout Tom Baker's tenure, it's. Uh, it is really, really interesting to see those different facets. So, yeah, I'd love to see that one day. Disney was very timid. And after the small, angry, white male backlash to The Last Jedi, Episode Eight, they went back and they consciously undid all of the diversity and inclusion stuff from Episode Eight, And then they made Episode Nine, which got rid of all the best parts of Episode Eight and undid them. So I would like the next showrunner to not be timid and not whitewash mm. the series to undo the angry Twitter follower reactions to the Jodie Whittaker doctor. So just to stick it to the audience, you kind of need the female doctor now. So yeah. I, I just hope they go in that direction and don't chicken out and cave into the Twitter trolls the way that J.J. Uh, Abrams caved into the Twitter trolls. Yeah, it's um, yeah. we'll wait and see. I mean, I don't... I think there'll be announcement fairly soon. It's normally fairly soon after the announcement of of a departure, isn't it? So, um, although they get all the publicity out, the speculation for a little while first as well. But so. We are recording in the middle of 2021, and there's going to be a six episode run this year, and then three specials next year. So Chibnall is still going to be the showrunner for another 18 months. We're not going to get the new showrunner of the 14th Doctor until 2023, which is the 60th anniversary year. So I guess they're not going to hire a showrunner now who's going to have then 18 months before they can actually get started with production. They might make it a last-minute decision. I think with Stephen Moffat, though, he was already working on Series 5 while the David Tennant specials, so there was some overlap um there in that he was preparing things and had like a lot of run-up time in the background so it might be an opportunity to do that again i don't know if they're going to do anything for the 60th 60th isn't really a big anniversary is it um i mean it's impressive for a tv show to get to 60 years very much but, so. even star wars hasn't gotten there yet yeah uh, but with big gaps you know <laughs> um yeah. you know not 60 continuous years it just doesn't feel like a, an anniversary way that like you know maybe 10, 20, 50 does. So. But will it be up to, uh, up to Pete McDee, Teague, or whoever, whoever uh, fills those boots? Or in the uh, 10th Doctor's case, whoever fills those Converse sneakers. Yes. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you very much, Jason. Uh, thank you for reading the book and for joining me today. Been good fun discussing this one with you. Yes, always a pleasure to be here. And everyone should check you out on Twitter. It's at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels. Um, your uh, journey through the classic series is essential uh, Essential reading. It's basically the first thing I read when I get up in the morning because oh. uh, you're posting it late at night and uh, I get up to what the dog about 6 a.m. and it's uh, it's usually just been uh, just been posted. I usually get to start watching at 11 p.m. New York time. So by the time I'm done, it's uh, you're already awake and about. So I yeah. just finished Shada, the animated reconstruction last night. It felt like a bit of a cheat because I am watching, you know, in chronological order and I am ignoring all the revised special effects because I want to see the series evolve visually and I can't do that if I'm watching some 21st century DVD guys reinterpretation of special effects 
that's unavoidable with Shada, though, because, you know, one version was made in the 1990s with a very Kef McCulloch soundtrack, and the other one, they've made a good go at doing 1970s-style special effects for the space station, but it still looks very contemporary. Then there's the animation. So tonight, I might go back and watch the 1990 VHS version of Shada. Or I might just start the Leisure Hive tonight, parts one and two. I'm just undecided if I'm going to be doing a second, sorry, a fourth night of Shada, or just move on to season 18. Uh, finally, uh, so I will also break uh, for the audience. It is not official yet. I am still in pre-production. It has not been released, but I am recording my own podcast, uh, and I've done five episodes so far with three terrific guests. And the guest on my first two recorded episodes, although they will not be released in that order, was a voice very familiar to longtime followers of Trap One. Yes, it was a great honor to uh, to be your first guest. So thank you very much for inviting me. I had a great time. You are the godfather of my Doctor Who fandom because you have done more for my Twitter feed and uh, my voice than anyone else out there. So you have given me a voice and you've... Uh, done remarkable things by sharing all my twitter posts to your audience so you had to be the first guest and the second guest as well although i don't know when that second episode will be released our first episode was discussing planet of fire which is both one of our favorite stories and i realize now that we goof by not mentioning uh, the fact that uh, malcon's son is a big name actor in england and now here in the states with the good doctor so maybe we'll go back and throw that in <laughs> We could do an episode on that. There's because uh, you've got uh, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's mum in Time of the Rani. Uh, you've, there's probably uh, if we went through, there's probably a lot of uh, people in Doctor Who whose kids went on to huge careers. You had Patrick Troughton's son in uh, Last Christmas, so that was a smaller part. Yeah. And then you have Sean Pertwee, who was living in Brooklyn for many years, while one of the leads on Gotham, which was shot here in the city. But though I don't think Sean Pertwee's – you need to kind of get Sean Pertwee to play the third Doctor in a multi-Doctor team-up, but that hasn't happened yet. Maybe it's too obvious. He d- he's increasingly uh, resembles his father, doesn't he? And when you see that famous picture of him with the wig and the cloak – um, he, he yeah, he looks fantastic. That was his Halloween costume one year, and he was living in – Brooklyn at the time, and I'm sorry that I didn't randomly trick or treat on his door and have the third doctor open the door for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, thanks again, and thank you very much for listening at home. Goodbye. Goodbye now. Yeah.